Hello and welcome to the History of Japan podcast, episode 500, the 500th episode. Well, here we are at long last. I started this podcast, if memory serves, in the spring of 2013, so I've been doing this now for a little over 10 years at this point, and it's been incredible. I've had a chance to do things I never would have dreamed of. Um, I had a student stop me in the hallway during the start of school this week and ask me about the Netflix show I was on. Uh, You know, it's just wild, honestly. Um, I think the big thing I want to say before we get into anything else is just thank you. I really enjoy doing this. I really enjoy hearing from all of you. Uh, Even when I don't respond to messages, just because I do get a lot of them, it really means a lot every single one I get. Uh, Thank you for listening. Thank you especially to those of you who are or have donated over the course of the years. It's just incredible, Uh, and it's really cool that I've I've had a chance to do this. Uh, So again, thank you all, and without further ado, let's get into it. First, from listener and patron Sam. How were the English translations of Kazoku titles established? Like, for example, we call him Prince Konoe Fumimaro, but who decided that Koshaku meant prince and not duke or count or something else? So as I understand it, it was primarily Ito Hirobumi who was behind this whole system. Specifically, he is usually credited as the primary drafter of the 1884 law, which laid out the basic rules behind Japan's peerage system, which would continue to exist all the way to 1947, when the US-imposed constitution scrapped that whole system. And really, it kind of had to be Ito, because by 1884, work is already underway, as we know, drafting Japan's imperial constitution, which would govern the country again until the U.S. occupation. That constitution, in turn, has two articles, Articles 15 and 34, that both reference the system of nobility. Specifically, they grant the emperor the right to make someone a kazoku, or peer, and they give peers a spot in the upper house of the diet-slash-parliament. So any law on how the peerage worked had to be compatible, so to speak, with the constitution Ito was working on. As for the translations, I couldn't find a definitive answer here, but I'm pretty sure it was Ito in combination with some of his Western advisors. Ito himself was a man with pretty unbounded enthusiasm for Western history and culture, and he had lived in the UK in the 1860s, after being forced to flee his native Choshu for his involvement in the Loyalist movement. So far as I know, though this is a little bit outside of my expertise, there's never been any work going through Ito's papers and looking specifically at the process of drafting the peerage law, but I would assume his time in both the United Kingdom and then in Germany in the early 1880s had familiarized him with the basics of Western-style aristocracies. I do want to note as an aside that titles of nobility did exist in Japan before 1884. Shortly after the Meiji Restoration, the imperial court began to hand out peerage titles. It's just that the 1884 law systematizes what those titles were, where in the past they were based on interpretations of traditional imperial court precedent. So the law is also what established that translation system, the terms being prince slash koshaku, marquess slash koshaku, which is a different ko in this case, count slash hakshaku, viscount slash shishaku, and baron slash donshaku. The shaku in all those instances is an older character which is derived from Chinese, which connotes nobility, but it also refers to a type of early Chinese bronze vessel. I'm not really sure where the etymology comes from. 
Anyway, that's the closest I can get you to an answer. Hopefully it's helpful. From listener Jason. You'd mentioned in episodes in the past that Japan's response related to the events of the 1991 Persian Gulf War was thought of as lackluster and is now considered something of a national embarrassment by many citizens. So are you following how Japan has responded to Russia's invasion of Ukraine? Do Japanese people think their country has responded appropriately, too little, too much, just right, to this larger crisis, and how is the discourse about it different than 1991? So if you take a look at the news, you'll see that Japan has expressed pretty vocal support for Ukraine for a pretty straightforward reason. As more than a few pundits have pointed out, Russia's acts of aggression to seize territory they view themselves as having a historical claim to has some potential parallels in a Chinese invasion of Taiwan. If Russia's war in Ukraine goes well, there's definitely an argument that it could embolden the government of Xi Jinping in Beijing to follow suit. Those fears have been deepened by growing China-Russia ties since the start of the war. One of the ways Russia is trying to make up from being cut off from Europe and American markets is to trade more heavily with China, and the People's Republic of China is notably one of the only major powers that has not yet condemned Russia's actions. Japan's support for Ukraine has been limited at this point to imposing sanctions upon Russia and offering humanitarian aid for Ukrainians, the JSDF has not, for example, offered training or weapons to Ukraine. That approach seems to have pretty broad support. Polls from last year suggest over 80% approval of sanctions on Russia, for example, and I haven't seen anything which suggested there's been a shift in opinion on that subject since. So broadly, there is support for pro-Ukrainian policies in Japan, and it's not really hard to see why. The narrative of the great empire attacking a smaller independent democracy is a pretty powerful one, not to mention news of Russia's various atrocities committed in occupied areas, and no weird tankies and Russia apologists, I'm not interested in hearing your takes about how Russia is secretly the good guy in all of this, feel free to scream into the void somewhere else. Anyway, I think all of this gets into a big difference between 1991 and 2022. Kuwait is certainly important to the world's oil economy, but Iraq is, of course, not in Japan's neighborhood. Russia both is a neighbor and is very friendly with a country that is commonly perceived as a direct military threat to Japan's own security. As to whether I think the Japanese government has done enough, I don't know that I'm really in a position to comment because I don't live there and I'm not a Japanese citizen. I will say that as an American who does believe very strongly in the U.S.-Japan alliance, I'm glad to see good security coordination with one of our most important allies. From patron and listener Tim, I'm wondering if there is a good comprehensive comparison of the three bakfu where they are placed side by side and evaluated in one place. Also, as an aside, is there a good book on the Russo-Japanese war in English? I've looked, but I can't seem to find one readily. So in terms of a specific political comparison across all three of the bakufu or the various shogunal governments, I can't think of any, though that period is a bit outside of my primary expertise. That would be pretty hard to do, honestly, especially since the Tokugawa shogunate was structurally so different from what came before. Honestly, if you're interested in the subject, what I'd recommend doing is finding good overview books on Japanese history, which naturally will treat all three periods over the course of their narratives. I'm a big fan of Conrad Totman's A History of Japan for this purpose, 
though I am somewhat biased in that it was the reference text for the class of my favorite Japanese history instructor, Will Johnston at Wesleyan University, for his Intro to Japanese History class. I still have my more than a decade and a half old coffee-splattered copy of the book. As for the Russo-Japanese War, again, to my knowledge, there's not really what I would call a complete history of the war out there. And by that, I mean something that deals both with its military and political, as well as its social aspects. There are plenty of blow-by-blow accounts of the conflict, and there's plenty about how the conflict changed Japan's domestic politics, for example, by triggering the massive Hibiya riots when it was revealed that the peace deal was not as favorable for Japan as jingoistic war propaganda had led the masses to assume. However, I haven't seen anything out there that treats both. So what I would do in this case is read across several different texts to get what I would call a complete account. For example, starting with Edward Dre's Japan's Imperial Army, as well as Kaigun by David Evans and Mark Petey for the Army and Navy, and then turning to something like Michael Lewis's Rioters and Citizens for more of the social context. But even that won't touch on everything like propaganda or home front mobilization during the war years. The other option would be, again, to look at something like Totman's A History of Japan, or Marius Jansen's The Making of Modern Japan, which only deals with things 1600 or later, but which is very comprehensive. Donald Keane's Emperor of Japan Meiji and His World is also ostensibly a biography of the Meiji Emperor, but deals very well, in my view, and highly readably with the larger historical context. It does have some great stuff on the Russo-Japanese War. From listener Tommy, I have a couple of different questions here. So first, as someone who grew up in the 90s, I'd love to hear more about topics relevant to that era. What are some topics that you could possibly cover? So there's a lot on the 90s I've thought about doing, and quite a few things I have done, like the rise of the old Democratic Party of Japan and the bubble collapse. I'm considering some future episodes on things like the recruit scandal, though those might get wrapped up into a project I'll talk more about at the end of this episode. And then there are a few topics I think would be interesting but are wildly outside of my area of expertise. For example, on J-pop and its rise to global notoriety, or on the history of Japanese video game manufacturers or franchises. I think these would be interesting, but I'm not really knowledgeable about them and wouldn't really know where to start to go for good research. From what little I have seen the stuff on video game history in Japan that's done at an academic level is frankly just not very good. A lot of it is more about trying to squeeze academic theory into these very narrow boxes than really, in my view, accomplishing anything of value. So these are more under the one day maybe I'll find some books that would be good uh, category than anything else. Um, If anyone knows any good books on these subjects that could get me primed to do those topics, let me know. Second question from Tommy. As someone who is interested in Japanese politics, I'd love to hear more episodes focused on the post-war era of important LDB politicians, specifically ones like Hashimoto Ryutaro and Nakasone Yasuhiro, to name a few. Would you consider doing more of these kind of focused episodes uh, similar to how you've covered Abe or Ikeda Hayato? I've actually been thinking a lot about doing these. I really find political history fascinating, and the LDP especially is such an interesting and unique institution to talk about. I just worry that so much political history is boring for those who are not into the subject. I love it. I know it's not everyone's cup of tea. But I really loved doing the Abe episodes and the DPJ ones. 
I at minimum would like to do something on Nakasone at some point. And of course, one of my very first episodes, which I remember very fondly, was on Tanaka Kakue. There are also a few pre-war prime ministers that I do want to do episodes on at some point, but it's really more a matter of trying to vary the subject material to keep things interesting than anything else. From listener Brandon, I have five really good questions. I really like all of these. First, who is your favorite of the three great unifiers and why? Uh, I would say definitely Tokugawa Ieyasu. I have a lot of respect for someone with a good grasp of politics, understanding when to lay low, when to strike, and unlike Hideyoshi with the Korea campaign, for example, not letting his ego get in the way of things. I wouldn't call Ieyasu a good person. I don't think anyone who wields power in a system like that really can be. But he was an effective ruler, and I think one of the better options for the country, given the circumstances of the time. Also, just personally, I would be way too afraid to party with Hideyoshi or Nobunaga for fear that I would say the wrong thing and get my head chopped off. Second question. If you had to form a four-person Dungeons & Dragons party from Japanese Prime Ministers, who would you want to make into the party's PCs? I love this so much, and I spent a lot of time thinking about it. So, first, I think I would want Kan Naoto as my wizard, because he seems like a huge dork who would spend a lot of time going through the spell list to make sure he's got a very optimized build, which is what you want in a wizard. I'd want Tanaka Kakue as a rogue, or bard, playing the face of the group, obviously, because he seems like he could do some very inventive bluffing when it's called for, and also if he's focused on playing the game, ideally he'll be too busy to embezzle anything or engage in graft, so it's a win-win for all involved. Ikeda Hayato seems like he would do well as a cleric or druid, someone who's kind of in the back line doing the unglamorous work of buffing the party, raising up their stats, or healing them as needed, while pulling out the big guns and zapping fools if it's necessary. You know, someone who's willing to do the yeoman's work of making the party function. As for a tank, I'm going to go a bit off the beaten track and say Sanjo Sanetomi. When he was young, during the final years of the Shogunate, he flung himself into court politics to the point of getting exiled, despite being from a pretty minor family in terms of the politics of the time, and that's the kind of energy you want in someone who's going to be your fighter or paladin or barbarian. If he'd ever made Prime Minister, I would have said Itagaki Taisuke, since he did literally tank a knife to the chest at one point, but sadly for him, he didn't make the cut, so to speak. Another good question from Brandon, why has Japan lagged behind other industrialized nations when it comes to gay rights, such as legalizing gay marriage? So this is a very big and very hard question, and honestly, I think it would make for a good episode in its own right at some point. Very briefly, and this is just my view, so take it for what it's worth, generally LGBTQ rights are a left-wing issue in global politics, and as we know, the Japanese political left is, and more or less has been, in shambles since the 60s or 70s. It's true that the LDP is not generally socially conservative in an anti-queer sense, or at least the mainstream of the party is not, but it also doesn't draw its political support from areas of society associated with queer rights, like the cities for example, because of how gerrymandered the national diet is. If you compare this to, for example, the Democratic Party in the United States, I think the difference is pretty clear. The Democrats draw from queer and queer-adjacent constituencies in big cities, and so are incentivized to support queer-friendly laws. 
That's why you've seen this big sea change over the past few decades, as queer movements start getting organized within the Democratic Party itself, and the party has begun to position itself as a defender of LGBTQ rights. Comparatively, groups like the Log Cabin Republicans, remember them, never really took off in the GOP because the Republican Party doesn't rely on those votes to win elections. There are other reasons as well, of course, but for my money, I look at where the governing party gets its support when I try and think about why its politics are the way they are. Next question. Do you think to some degree Queen Himiko existed, or is she really just a legend, or largely a legend? So personally, I've always been inclined towards the legends usually have some basis in reality analysis, but that is more a matter of kind of personal interpretation. I have a hard time explaining where legends come from otherwise than it does concrete evidence. I would suspect there is something there, but something in this case would probably be just a female ruler who was associated with religious power and divination. This broadly fits with what we know of early Japanese religion, where women had prominent roles, something you see maintained in the position of the Miko slash shrine maiden today, and would explain all the stuff about Himiko having sorceress powers. But barring some pretty big archaeological finds, I'll doubt we'll ever know for sure. And the final question from Brandon, what is a more off-the-beaten-path area of Japan that doesn't get enough attention to its great stories and culture, in your opinion? I would absolutely say Hokkaido. I lived there back in 2009, I loved it to pieces, I've always wanted to go back, and hopefully I will soon. Hakodate remains one of my favorite cities on the planet, and honestly I like Sapporo even if people knock it as just a lesser version of Tokyo. There's a lot of natural beauty, some really great history, some really cool Meiji-era architecture, and some killer food. Oh, soup curry, so good. And to top it off, unlike the rest of Japan, it's not like wading through an armpit if you go in the summer. The weather is pretty similar to the Pacific Northwest. It's warm, but reasonably dry. Special mention, too, to Shikoku, especially Tokushima. One of my very first Japanese friends lived out there and housed me and two of my friends during our first trip to Japan, and I'll always remember that trip and that place really fondly. Shout out to the Nishikawa family who did us a real solid and showed us an absolutely incredible time. From listener Samuel, you've talked a lot about various heads of state throughout history and how they were just nominal rulers who didn't wield actual power. How aware were these rulers of this? Did the Kamakura emperors realize their role had been decreased? Did the Minamoto slash Tokugawa shoguns with overly strong advisors resent them? So it's hard to know this specifically because we don't have a lot in the way of, say, diaries from powerful people in various periods. Texts like diaries were usually kept secret within families and passed down internally, and are therefore largely lost. The few we do have are the ones that survived and were uncovered somewhat serendipitously by researchers in later periods. That said, I have a hard time imagining someone being unaware of being puppeteered in that way, and there is evidence to suggest it was even obvious to those who were outside the direct halls of power. For example, we have the tale of Lady Nijo, subject of episode 454 and an imperial consort. After she left Kyoto under somewhat ignominious circumstances in the late 1200s, she made her way to Kamakura, among other places, and there saw one of the new puppet shoguns, who was 12, being installed where the previous one retired at the ripe old age of 25. 
She was savvy enough to see as this was happening how these puppet shoguns were being manipulated by the Hojo family to, in her view, the detriment of the grandeur of the imperial court. And it was obvious to her as someone who had just come to the city. It's hard to imagine many people closer to what was going on missing it. And that's not the only example. Remember, at the end of the Kamakura Shogunate in the 1330s, Emperor Go-Daigo led a rebellion to try and reassert the power of the imperial throne, which of course implies that he was aware the throne didn't already have power. It is also worth noting that these sorts of political fictions are far from unique to Japan. There are historical reasons why the imperial family, for example, became particularly useful as puppets for political manipulation, but there have been plenty of other puppet rulers and other monarchies around the world. Another question from Samuel, is there a consensus on whether or not the imperial regalia still exist? I know the sword was lost at sea, but what about the jewel in the mirror? If so, why wouldn't the Japanese government document their existence somehow? So to the best of my knowledge, nobody has ever really delved into this too deeply, probably because if you want to work on anything even remotely related to the emperor or the imperial family, annoying the imperial household agency is not a good idea. If you need a quick refresh, the imperial regalia of Japan consist of three treasures, a sword, a mirror, and a curved gem that were supposedly brought down to earth by one of the divine ancestors of the imperial family, Ninigi no Mikoto, who in turn is the grandson of Amaterasu, the sun goddess. These treasures in turn became heirlooms of the sitting emperor and are bequeathed to him upon his enthronement. They are not displayed publicly, unlike, say, the crown jewels of the United Kingdom. The most you can see of them are photos of the boxes in which they are presented to the emperor upon his coronation. My understanding, though I have not yet been invited to a coronation despite my repeated requests to be so, is that the Emperor doesn't even get to open the box. Literally nobody knows what these things look like, though there are some guesses based on archaeological finds from early Japanese history. So, the sword, as mentioned, is almost certainly a replica. During the Genpei War of 1180-1185, to the defeated Taira clan took the sword along with their claimant to the Imperial Throne, Emperor Antoku, when they retreated from Kyoto in the face of their advancing enemies from the Minamoto clan. In turn, Antoku and the sword were both lost at the climactic naval battle of Dannoura. There are all sorts of fun legends from medieval Japan about how the real sword magically found its way home anyway, but likely those are just legends intended to protect the legitimacy of the treasures and thus the throne itself. As for the other pieces of the regalia, when they're not being used for coronations, they are all housed in different places. The replacement goldfished sword is in Atsuta Shrine in Nagoya, the mirror is in Ise Shrine, and the gem is kept on the grounds of the Imperial Palace in Tokyo. But again, none of them are publicly displayed, the idea being, I suppose, to protect the mythology around the items themselves. Nor has any researcher ever been given access to them. So, really, there's no way to know. And I guess that's not really the point of the Imperial Regalia anyway. The whole idea of their power comes from their antiquity and their mystery from the tradition of it all, and actually sneaking a peek, finding out whether or not they exist, would kind of break the spell. So I doubt we'll ever know, and again, nobody really wants to hack off the Imperial Household Agency by diving in too deeply. Finally, one more question. 
Uh, I thought it might make for a cool episode to talk about traditional Japanese music and how it differs from Western music. I saw a Koto performance once and their sheet music was something I'd never seen before. The rhythm and notes seem different as well. I think this would be an awesome episode. Unfortunately, I am utterly without musical talent or indeed a basic grasp of music beyond, hey, that sounds cool. I would really need a guest for this one. I absolutely cannot do it myself. So if anyone knows someone who would be interested in coming on to talk with me about this, please do not hesitate to reach out. From listener Jim, your most recent episodes brought the question of travel memoirs to mind. Have you read any travel writing about Japan you have enjoyed? I think I mentioned this way back a couple years ago, but I always have had a soft spot for Alan Booth. If you don't know him, Booth was an English writer who lived in Japan from the late 1970s until his death from cancer in 1993, having moved to the country in order to study Japanese theater. He wrote two books, The Roads to Sata and Looking for the Lost, both of which are fascinating portraits of the more rural parts of Japan in the latter half of the boom years. However, in general, I don't actually read that much travel writing, which is actually something I'd love to change, so if anyone has any recommendations, definitely send them my way. From listener Jordan, a couple of questions again. First, I'm sure a bunch of Japan-based fans, myself included, would have treated you to the good sake during your recent visit. Did you think about doing an audience meetup? Not your style. I actually did want to organize something while I was there, but in the midst of everything else that was happening, I put it off until organizing something didn't make sense anymore. I would really like to do it at some point. I just need to be more proactive about remembering to organize it. Uh, and hopefully, fingers crossed, uh, now that I've gotten Demetria hooked, I'll be going a bit more consistently in the future. Second, you haven't spoken much about the history of the Japanese language. It seems like an interesting topic with layers of ancient local, Korean, Chinese, and Western influence, a lot of changes in how the different writing systems are used, rapid changes in the modern period, is it a topic you've decided you don't want to cover, or is it somewhere in the backlog? Like the music topic, this is one of the ones I find really interesting, but also feel like I have no background to cover. With topics that relate to anthropology, politics, economics, and the like, my background in liberal arts academia means I can usually make sense of the basics of what I find in a research paper when I'm digging into the subject. Linguistics, however, is something I could never really wrap my head around. There are a few things I want to talk about at some point, like the changes to the Japanese language that happened during the Meiji era, when you have new terms incorporated to define Western ideas, but it feels really strange to do that without some context on the evolution of the language as a whole, and I've never really come up with an approach that felt like it made sense and also fit the skill sets that I bring to the table. So it's something that's on the list, so to speak, but I really have to think about how I want to do it. Next, two questions from listener Ranuk, which I'm going to kind of combine and deal with together. First, thoughts on the rise of the Japanese department store, its relation to modernization in early 20th century Japan, consumer culture, commercial art, and so on. And second, you've done some episodes that cover historic tales like the tale of Genji, Heike Monogatari, and so on. Do you think the tale of Dojoji and other illustrated hand scrolls or Otogizoshi in general would work as topics? I, Ranuk, have looked at them mainly as art or literature pieces, but the heavy upheaval of the Muromachi period is probably contextually important. These are both fantastic ideas that I actually have thought about doing, 
Again, both of them are a bit out of my specialty, so I really have to devote some time to doing some heavy background reading. But I do especially love looking at pre-modern literature and art because it's an area I didn't really get to work on in graduate school despite finding interesting. Grad school really rewards hyper-specialization, and one of the things I really love about doing the podcast is I do get to kind of jump around a little bit, which keeps things feeling fresh. Outside of the sort of major works, that usually means dealing with pieces I haven't read before, so it does need to happen during my off time from my regular teaching job, because otherwise I just don't have the free brain space. So, for example, when I did Ise Monogatari last year, that was because I had an uninterrupted week at the beach to work through the text while taking notes, which tragically is not a luxury I have that often, because honestly it was a really great way to spend a week at the beach. The department store idea actually is totally fresh. I hadn't considered that before, but I really like it. It sounds fun. Uh, I would need to think about how to frame it to keep things from feeling too abstract. One of the things I like to do when you're dealing with kind of social or economic history, things that can feel very zoomed out, very abstract, is to have a single kind of focal point for the story. So, for example, the story of the student movement framed through the protests at Nihon University or Tokyo University, or the economic bubble with a specific focus on the long-term development bank. I need to think about how I want to approach that for looking at department stores, so I'll have to dig into what sources I can find, but I really like the idea. So both of these, short answer, are on the docket, so to speak, but provisionally, depending on what's out there. And last thing, good luck, Ronak, with the PhD. Uh, it's a lot of work, but it can be really rewarding. Another question from listener Yiftach. Uh, what's your attitude towards your Jewish heritage? How do you manage a mixed household, assuming by the name that Dimitri is not Jewish? So... Our household's actually not mixed. Demetria and I are both Jewish. Her name is from her Greek ancestry. Demeter is the harvest god of ancient Greece. But Spinrad is very much a Jewish last name. And actually, if you're a deep-cut sci-fi nerd, you might already be familiar with that name. Uh, Norman Spinrad was one of the great weird Jewish sci-fi authors of the late 20th century. And I do mean weird, uh, if you're not familiar with his work. They're distantly related, though I forget how exactly that all fits together. Anyway, as to my relationship with said heritage, uh, this is where we're going to need to back up a spell and do some explaining. I'm going to do my best to make this both clear for Jewish listeners and comprehensible if you don't have any background, uh, and hopefully I'll kind of split that uh, difference effectively. Broadly, Jewish movements today define themselves in relation to halakha, traditional Jewish law. Uh, Demetria and I are part of America's liberal mainstream of Jews who represent a majority of America's Jewish population and who take a more interpretive view of traditional Jewish law. I was raised as a part of the Reform Movement, which treats traditional Jewish law through a more historical interpretive lens rather than treating it as immutable. Other movements have different interpretations. For example, many of my friends growing up were conservative Jews who take a more traditional reading of halakha but try to interpret it in ways that are favorable to living in a modern, pluralistic society. Then there's the Orthodox movement, which takes a, well, more Orthodox view of how to interpret Jewish law. In the United States, those are the big three, so to speak, but that's just in the United States. Reform, for example, is not that big in Europe because it was very associated with the German Jewish community before World War II and was brought to America by German Jewish immigrants. 
the European branch of the reform movement was largely wiped out in the Holocaust. So, since I'm a reformed Jew, my view of Jewish tradition is a lot less literalist than other branches of Judaism. I treat issues of Torah far more interpretively than my counterparts in other movements as part of a historical evolution of ideas about what it means to be Jewish rather than a hard and fast set of rules. For example, I don't follow the same standards around Shabbat, the Sabbath, the day of rest, as an Orthodox Jew usually would. I do use technology, I drive a car, where an Orthodox Jew generally wouldn't do those things. But I take the day off completely from all work and do something restful and fun instead. I also like to engage in the ritual of Judaism more so than Demetria does, uh, which is actually something I came to largely because of my study of Confucianism, interestingly enough. Confucius, I think, makes some really good points about how ritual is much more this-worldly than we give it credit for. It's a way of expressing ideas about how the world should work through how we act. And I really like that as a way of interpreting the ritual side of Judaism. For example, the Jewish New Year is coming up. I personally don't literally believe that God is writing our fates for the coming year and sealing them on Yom Kippur, but I see the value in a ritual reminding us to make amends for mistakes of the previous year and renew our resolve to be better people in the coming one. That said, my interpretations are not the only ones, and certainly they are not the only valid ones. I wouldn't claim that they are somehow right. Demetria, for example, treats Judaism as more of a cultural and ethical inheritance. I've heard it said that there are as many different ways to be Jewish as there are Jews, and to be frank, I think that's one of my favorite things about Judaism. One of the things I do at work, actually, is help to run a community for Jewish students and faculty, and discussing our different ideas about what Judaism is and what it means to be Jewish has always been really rewarding. Uh, I personally have become a very firm believer in the definition preferred by the rabbi Mordecai Kaplan, the foundational figure of the Reconstructionist branch of Judaism, who called Judaism the evolving civilization of the Jewish people. There's a lot of complexity in what that means, and it goes well beyond what most people think of as purely religious, into the worlds of politics, culture, and elsewhere. Regardless, Jewish history encourages debate and discussion about how to interpret ideas, and that valuing of intelligence combined with an emphasis on respect even when we disagree with people is another one of the things I really love about being Jewish. So hopefully that gives some sense of how I relate to being Jewish. Now, finally, we've reached the end of our questions, and I want to close today with a very special announcement about the future of the podcast. If you're a patron, you've already heard this from me, but for the rest of you, this is new. So it's pretty wild to think that I have been working on this podcast for, at this point, over 10 years, and been producing an episode a week, more or less every week, over the entire time period. That has been a wild ride, uh, and I have enjoyed it a lot, but there are a few things I want to take another crack at. Chief among them are actually the earliest episodes of this podcast, the 20-ish episodes I used to provide a basic overview of Japanese history. The goal of that overview was, of course, to give a basic framework for us to then jump around with all of the subsequent 480-ish episodes. But of course, these were also my very first episodes, and the production quality is rough. Or at least, that's what I'm told. I am horrified at the prospect of re-listening to some of those personally. I actually really don't like listening to my own voice, 
which, yes, is ironic and funny given the context. These early background episodes are also far and away some of the most downloaded episodes in the entire backlog, which is really saying something at this point. Partially, of course, that's because they're the earliest, but also I've heard a lot from folks who go to them for basic information to supplement an intro to Japanese history course, or because they're going to Japan for the first time and want to know a bit about the history. I think that's fantastic, I'm really glad they're useful for folks. But 10 years on, I am A, much better, at least in my opinion, at the audio side of things and just generally making good content, and B, much more knowledgeable about Japanese history because thanks to you all I have read far and wide about subjects I never would have touched in graduate school because they are way too far outside what was my specialty. With that improved background, I think it's finally time to do something I've wanted to do for a long time. So we have arrived at episode 500. Starting next week with episode 501, we will return, so to speak, to the beginning. I will be doing a new intro to Japanese history series to take advantage of all of the new expertise I now have. The tentative framework, as my patrons have seen, is to build this out to 38 episodes instead of the original 20 I tried to do last time, but honestly my plan is to just take it one at a time. If you are one of my beloved patrons, you already know roughly what I'm thinking in terms of breakdown, but if not, you get to enjoy the surprise as it comes. I know roughly what I want to cover, so I'm going to go through and give it about as many episodes as I think it will take. Uh, If you've been listening to this podcast for a while, you do know that I have a tendency to vastly underestimate how long things will take, but I really want to try and stick to that like mid to upper 30s episode number just to keep things reasonably digestible. Hopefully this is an exciting prospect for you all. I am glad to be providing an introductory primer to Japanese history for anyone out there who might be interested, and I'm excited to return to a project I'm very proud of and hopefully do it better the second time around. So with that announcement made, that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening. This show is a part of the Facing Backward podcast network. You can find out more about this show and our other shows at facingbackward.com, and you can support the network at patreon.com slash facingbackward. Special thanks to those who have given at our shout-out tier, Yan Leonard, Stephen Elkins, Martin Oliveira, Clark Canning, Ian Kellett, Matt Haynes, Jackie Frostocker, Monkey Sack, Alayla McCulloch, Karen Murphy, Peter Wales, Robert Prine, William Arno, Jonas Brandis, Nicholas Kroll, Jerry Spinrad, Jared Stevens, Jeffrey Dwork, Stefan Hrushka, Joshua Kane, Robbie and Kat, Jacob Key, Aaron Finkbeiner, an anonymous Anna's Hummingbird, Mark Sai, Gil, Leslie Ikuta, Trash Taste Enjoyer, Shimao Toshio's History of Japanesia Podcasts, A House is a Perfectly Cromulent Mascot, The Fish I Catch Are Road Scholars Compared to Samuel Alito, Who Remains a Schmuck, and Everything Changed When the Fire Nation Attacked. Thank you again for listening for these past 10 years and I will see you next time as we turn to a new page in the history of the podcast.